From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, June 14th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Egypt's top court dissolves parliament. Now Egyptian politics are in turmoil days before the presidential runoff election. Meanwhile, women in Cairo still face sexual assault in the streets and a lack of justice. The truth of the matter is that even in the more serious incidents, even in the rare cases where women do uh, insist on filing a complaint, it never goes anywhere. Later in the program, cave art designed to show motion. Man's earliest form of entertainment coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The highest court in Egypt today threw the country's transition to democracy into chaos. The court ruled that last year's parliamentary elections were unconstitutional, and so the Egyptian parliament must be dissolved. That ruling is a blow to the Muslim Brotherhood, which dominates the legislature, and it comes just days before a presidential runoff vote in Egypt. The world's Matthew Bell is in Cairo. Matthew, the military, which essentially runs Egypt, has declared the state of martial law. A lot more has happened today as well. Explain what's going on. That's right, Lisa. Today was a, a historic decision made by the high court here in Cairo. There were two things that they were looking at this morning. One was whether one of the two candidates facing a runoff this weekend, Ahmed Shafiq, he's Hosni Mubarak's last prime minister, he could have been disqualified by a law that was passed by parliament. The high court said, no, he won't be disqualified. He can go ahead and run. That was expected. What was bigger was the decision to dissolve parliament by saying that one-third of the individuals elected in last year's parliamentary elections were illegitimate. That surprised a lot of people. And what it does is essentially hobbled the legislative branch. So now you have the military in control of this transitional process that's been very opaque, confusing Egyptians. They're, they're very concerned. There's been times of chaos the last 18 months. And now it's just not clear what this presidential election means that's supposed to happen two days from now. What is the intent behind this? Is what the Supreme Court has done in Egypt an attempt to undermine the move toward democracy, undermine any kind of progress since the revolution that pulled Mubarak from power? Is it, is it to bring Mubarak's people back in? I think a lot of Egyptians will see it as just that. A lot of experts are describing this as a soft coup by the Egyptian military. Here they are in charge of of the whole process. They have connections with the judiciary. One expert told me today that this seems like the military rulers have essentially dragged the judiciary, which at one point had a lot of respect here in Egypt as being independent, but dragged them into the political process. People will see that now Ahmed Shafiq, the military's man, Mubarak's man, is looking pretty good going into this weekend's election. He gave a triumphant speech this afternoon 
that it seemed like every Egyptian was watching on television, listening on the radio, where Shafiq came on and said, I will bring stability to the country. It was almost sounded like a victory speech even two days before the voting started. Well, what does it mean for the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the strongest party in Egypt's new parliament elected to power now that the lower house of parliament is being dissolved? What's what's this mean for the Muslim Brotherhood's future? It's a real blow to the Brotherhood, that's for sure, and it leaves them with some really tough choices. The Brotherhood did very well in the parliamentary elections. They won 40% of the vote. They are putting up the other candidate that's facing Ahmed Shafiq in the election this weekend. Mohamed Morsi is their candidate. Some people think that he would have a good chance to win. This changes everything because now the Brotherhood will be faced with the decision of do they try to reject this judicial decision as illegitimate as being manipulated by the military? Do they go ahead and participate in the vote and then hope to win? There are other questions, too, about what what is the president's power if the president is elected when there's no parliament and, and under a military system that most people don't understand and many people don't agree with, and they don't think that the military has done a good job at all with this process. Matthew, what are you hearing from people around Cairo, where you are right now, in reaction to this? I think it's it's really adding to confusion, Lisa, and it's adding to some frustration. I was down at the court today talking with people there. A lot of them said they weren't going to vote in the presidential election anyway. They saw it as illegitimate, being manipulated by the military. But one guy basically explained it to me like this. He said, look, we had a revolution. We overthrew Hosni Mubarak, who was in power for 30 years. We're done with that. We don't want his military in control anymore. We don't want his old prime minister in control anymore. I mean, the guy was seething with with frustration. And, and the big question, I think, is, you know, what do those people do if they decide to vote? Do they decide to boycott? And then do they decide to go to the streets? The rules, Matthew Bell in Cairo with the latest. Thank you, Matthew. You're welcome, Lisa. When Egyptians do take to the streets, there is an always present danger for women in the crowd, and that is the danger of sexual assault. Disturbing attacks on women during recent protests in Cairo's Tahrir Square have sparked concern. Noel King reports from the Egyptian capital. On the day we spoke, there was a protest march in Tahrir Square, but 26-year-old activist Nihal Saad Zaglul stayed home. Zaglul says she doesn't feel safe in Tahrir anymore after she and two female friends were sexually assaulted by a mob of men at another demonstration. It was getting so crowded and we wanted to get out and suddenly some men just started to grab us, pull us away from each other. It was groping and like hands all over you and it wasn't really nice at all, like it was really aggressive. Some men were trying to to help us out, but at some point you did not know who was helping and who was not. Cairo is never an easy city for women. Catcalling, groping, and unwanted sexual advances are common. Some women find the harassment irritating. Others find it frightening. Most agree that it is almost impossible to avoid. But Nihal says what happened to her and her friends in Tahrir Square differed from day-to-day sexual harassment. They didn't get the meaning of no and leave us alone. They were just going on and on and on and on. It was as if they're animals and drugs or something. It wasn't. It wasn't normal. It was. It, it wasn't as if they were normal people. You know, they were enjoying. They were like sadistic. They were enjoying hurting us. Nihal didn't go to the police because she knew it's unlikely that anyone would be punished. The fact that many women today 
don't automatically go to the police is a reflection of the fact that they know that their complaint won't be taken seriously and, and won't progress. So they think it's a waste of time. Heba Marayev is an Egypt analyst with Human Rights Watch. In some cases, obviously, the police is also, you know, the, involved in the harassment. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that even in the more serious incidents, even in the rare cases where women do uh, insist on filing a complaint, it never goes anywhere. Police have ceded control in Tahrir Square to civilian watchdog groups. After 22-year-old engineering student Abdel Fattah Mahmoud heard about Nihal's assault from a blog post she wrote about the incident, he formed a group of his own. For Abdel Fattah and many young men and women who took part in the revolution, Tahrir is a sacred space. For this to happen, that means the revolution is dying in, in, in the eyes of the people and in the hearts of the youth that started it. This is very significant. It's more significant than the marshes and the sitting. This is very significant. We can't let this happen here. Abdel Fattah and other young revolutionaries say they believe that the assaults on women are a deliberate attempt to scare them away from the square and to tarnish Tahrir's image. But they can't pinpoint who might be behind the attacks, and they have no proof that the attacks are planned. A few days after Nihal was assaulted, she and Abdel Fattah helped organize a rally in Tahrir against sexual harassment. Things got off to a slow start. Only a few, mostly non-Egyptian women, turned out, and they were quickly surrounded by crowds of curious men. I mean, we're being surrounded by other men, and I don't feel comfortable. It's just because we're foreign women standing around. This is my problem. Is that these are... Yeah, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't like this. Surrounding us, Yanni, like, these aren't men here to protect us. These are men that are probably going to assault us. But the women stayed and their numbers grew. Around 50 women held homemade signs and chanted against sexual harassment. They were ringed by men wearing neon yellow vests, members of Abdel Fattah's civilian patrol. I asked Nihal Sadzaglul how it felt to be back in Tahrir. It feels a bit awkward and strange, but uh, seeing all of these people supporting us, it just feels better. Do you feel like you're safe? Uh... A bit, yes, but not that great, but I feel it's okay. I'm here. The rally was scheduled to last until sundown. At dusk, the group disbanded and most participants headed for home. A few stayed behind in the square. As night fell, they were attacked by a mob of men. The women fled and escaped without serious injuries. They didn't go to the police, and their attackers haven't been identified. For The World, I'm Noelle King in Cairo. This was a rather embarrassing day for the British Prime Minister David Cameron. He became the focus of an inquiry that he himself ordered into Britain's media ethics. That inquiry was launched in the aftermath of the telephone hacking scandal, something that's shaken Rupert Murdoch's media empire. Well, today Prime Minister Cameron was grilled about his close relationship with Rupert Murdoch and several of Murdoch's top executives. John Burns is a London bureau chief for The New York Times. And, John, I know you have been watching David Cameron's grilling in this inquiry. How close was he with Rupert Murdoch's inner circle, and why is it so much at issue? Well, he was very close, and he hasn't attempted to disguise that, and it has been seriously embarrassing. His defense is that his close relationships with the Murdochs and their executives was pretty much the same as the relationship that had been sought by previous prime ministers, certainly by 
uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, the two Labour Party prime ministers who preceded him. But today's testimony will offer a new headline, and it goes right to the heart of this issue, because we saw today yet another text previously undisclosed, this time between Cameron and Rebecca Brooks, who was the chief executive of the Murdoch newspaper empire in Britain, forced to resign over this scandal, now facing a criminal indictment for perjury. And the text was toe-curlingly embarrassing for Cameron. Just as Cameron was about to make his annual speech to the Conservative Party conference, Rebecca Brooks sent him a text which said, and I quote, I am so rooting for you tomorrow, and not just as a proud friend, but because professionally we're definitely in this together. And then she added, and Americans will recognize the reference, she completed her text by saying, speech of your life, yes, he cam. That's C-A-M, as in Cameron. Yes, he cam. That was probably the most embarrassing moment of today's testimony for for David Cameron. And uh, David Cameron's reaction, the prime minister's reaction when that text was read? In a day, five hours of testimony in which he, on the whole, looked pretty unflappable. I think it was one moment when he looked more flushed than than at other times and felt awkward about it. But it wasn't a smoking gun. There was no smoking gun today. David Cameron ends the day, I would say, in some respects, better off than he began it, if only because he navigated what was seen as being a potentially very difficult encounter at the inquiry for him without uh, the inquiry council ever really landing a serious blow. I mean, everything we learned today, we already knew. Cameron, the point has been made, is just one of a string of prime ministers who has tried to to charm the media in Britain. Is there any kind of equivalent that you can see in terms of power politics in the media in the United States? I think it would be foolish to deny that there are some echoes of this in the United States. The coziness, if you will, of some media organizations uh, with uh, administrations in Washington. I think it's worse here. Concentration of media ownership is one issue. I mean, just to give you one example, Rupert Murdoch's newspapers, until he closed the notorious News of the World last year, they claimed 40% of the newspaper readership in Britain. And this is when he already controlled B Sky B, which is the most lucrative and a widely watched private satellite broadcaster in this country. So Murdoch has had an enormous influence. John Burns, London Bureau Chief for The New York Times, speaking to us from London. Thanks a lot. Thank you. More news coming up. This is The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Ancient cave paintings have a way of connecting us in a snap to our past as a species. The art offers a glimpse of how our early ancestors thought and how they lived. Well, there's a new study out of Spain that raises an intriguing possibility. Researchers have found cave art that's older than any previously dated. How old is it? Well, it's so old, it may not have been painted by modern humans. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has our story. The caves in question are on the northern coast of Spain. Archaeologist Alistair Pike is with the University of Bristol. We visited 11 caves in Cantabria and Asturias. He says one of those caves was Altamira. That's where prehistoric art was first discovered in the 19th century. 
Altamira is famous for its elaborate three-dimensional images of bison and other animals. Then there are simpler drawings of red dots and hand stencils. Now, the paintings in these caves had already been dated by previous researchers. But Pike says those dates were unreliable because dating cave art is tricky business. The primary dating method that archaeologists use, radiocarbon dating, is not suitable for paintings that are made purely with mineral pigments or engravings. So Pike and his colleagues developed what they say is a more reliable and accurate approach. It relies on something that naturally happens to most cave art over the centuries. These paintings in caves have forming on top of them very thin calcium carbonate crusts, and they're formed by the same process that forms stalagmites and stalactites in caves. Scientists can determine when these crusts formed by looking at tiny amounts of radioactive uranium. Once they know the date of the crust, they know that the painting line underneath must be older. So Pike and his team applied this technique to the Spanish caves and found that some of the artwork was much older than anyone expected. He says a cave in Cantabria had the oldest piece of art. It's a red disc that dates to older than 40,800 years. That makes it at least several thousand years older than the cave art previously considered to be the oldest. But remember, that is only the minimum age of the painting, says Pike's colleague Joao Ziliao of the University of Barcelona. It could be 41.5, it could be 42,000, 45,000, 50,000. This means the artwork may predate by thousands of years when modern humans arrived in Europe. So who was the artist? Ziliao suspects it was a Neanderthal. Neanderthals lived in Europe long before modern humans arrived from Africa. Scientists used to think that Neanderthals were sort of our dumber, less evolved cousins, not the artistic type. But research over the past decade has revealed a rather different picture. We now know that Neanderthals probably cooked their food and made tools for hunting and fishing. Zilio says they were also culturally more sophisticated than previously thought. Neanderthals uh, engaged in body painting, okay, They used pendants. We have evidence of the use of perforated marine shells, perforated animal teeth used as pendants. We knew they they buried their dead. So it's not too far-fetched to assume that they might have been painting in caves too. Julian Real Salvatore is an anthropologist at the University of Colorado, Denver. He studies Neanderthals. He says the new report does raise a provocative possibility about the origin of cave art. But I would still hold my breath a little bit longer before asserting that uh, Neanderthals were, were involved here. Real Salvatore says he'd be more likely to believe that Neanderthals painted in caves if future research turned up stronger evidence. For instance, Neanderthal tools close to the artwork or paintings even older than the ones in the new study. The authors of the new study are already on it. They are scouring caves all over Europe for signs of older paintings. For the world... I'm Ritu Chatterjee. And that new study was published in the journal Science. We've got photos of the cave art at theworld.org. Believe it or not, we've got more on cave paintings in our next story, and we're going to offer a rather contemporary explanation for them, or at least for some of them. These are animal cave paintings, and they aren't as old as the ones we just heard about. These date back to maybe about 30,000 years ago. Listen to this theory, though. These paintings weren't just depicting a wild beast that happened to trot by. Nope, they were depicting that wild beast in motion, as in stop motion, as in animation, as in moving pictures. Here's the world's Carol Hills. Imagine your early man, or woman, 
It's the Stone Age, and you're sitting around a fire. Yes, you have fire. Someone beckons you into a cave to look at something on the wall. They're holding a torch, and it flickers across a series of images of a horse. When the torch moves from one image of the horse to the next, you see the legs and hooves in different places. If you scan quickly from one to the other, you see the horse start to gallop. Budlump, 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 budlump. Sort of like one of those flip books where you fan through the pages and watch the pictures move. But we're talking cave paintings drawn tens of thousands of years ago. French archaeologist and filmmaker Marc Azema says those cave paintings could represent the earliest stirrings of motion pictures. I don't think it's too much to call it an early form of cinema. It was the first grand form of communication with an audience and pictures. To get to today's cinema, there were many steps in the evolution, but this was the starting point. Marc Azema has spent 20 years looking at cave paintings in France and Spain, zeroing in on the representation of animal movement. And not just movement in the sense of locomotion, but movement within an animal, wagging tails, beating wings. The idea that early man was looking across a series of cave paintings and seeing movement illustrates a fundamental characteristic of visual perception. It's called retinal persistence. That's when you've got an image, then a successive image, and another image. And the retina follows what's coming next. Retinal persistence allows the brain to take in images and see it as movement. Prehistoric man had figured this out. Asima is not ready to suggest that early man pulled up a seat with a bucket of popcorn to watch the cave paintings, but he does believe the paintings tell stories. And those stories could have been the experience of the artist, who was likely also a hunter. The paintings, whether they be of horses galloping, birds flying, and other wild beasts wagging their tails, illustrate what the artist-slash-hunter may have observed. And in that way, Azama believes the cave painters may have been the very earliest naturalists. They chose images that were present in their environment and which often depicted the cycle of life. Not only that, when you're in a dark cave with a light, you have the impression of being in a modern screening room. Prehistoric man had the need to get the images out of his brain and on the wall. Which suggests moving pictures, or motion pictures, are a very old form of storytelling. For The World, I'm Carol Hills. You can see a video of prehistoric cave paintings as animation. It's pretty amazing, and it's at theworld.org. What bargain-hunting Canadians mean to America's airports? Coming up on The World, this is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Greeks struggle to get by during their country's economic crisis. This woman is selling her family's clothes to make ends meet. I don't think that clothes matters now, right now, right this moment, you know, from all the crisis. I think food is more important. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Europe is holding its breath in anticipation of Sunday's elections in Greece. The vote could determine whether Greece remains a part of the Eurozone. One of the leading parties in Greece wants to scrap the EU bailout deal. That's the agreement that forced Greece to pass draconian austerity measures. If that happens, if the deal is scrapped, the country could go bankrupt and be forced to drop the euro. In one Greek city, some residents are already starting to do without the euro, at least part of the time. The world's Clark Boyd reports from Volos, which is a port town about 200 miles north of Athens. Buyers and sellers gather in a sweltering, previously abandoned building. There's a bit of everything available, books, eggs, clothes, kids' toys, even an old fax machine. But there isn't a euro in sight. This market is the brainchild of a network of people who have chucked the euro in favor of the TEM. That's Greek shorthand for alternative local currency. In the network, uh, people can uh, trade uh, their goods and services. Uh, they don't need money for that. They just need uh, you know, some time and uh, the desire to do it. That's Christos Papa Ioannou, one of the network's founders. He says it's kind of like bartering on steroids. We can see it as exchanging favors. So, for example, if I do uh, a service for you, then uh, you owe me a favor, and I can uh, use that favor to get some service from somebody else. So we don't have to exchange uh, directly. I can uh, do it with some uh, third person. Let's say someone offers a haircut. The network determines that's worth 10 credits. To make it easier to set prices, one tem is valued at one euro. The haircutter can then spend those credits on products at the market or on services offered by someone else. To be clear, there's no real currency that changes hands, no script. Instead, credits are tracked, goods and services are listed, offered, and accepted through an open-source computer program designed for this kind of community banking. Papa Ioannou says the original idea for the network predates the economic crisis. The idea that we can improve on the way people uh, deal economically, that people, you know... uh, do things together and they take their lives in their own hands, basically. That idea appeals to Europeans Suras. First of all, I thought that the existing economic system was uh, something like a war. It wasn't made for the citizens. He joined the TEM network in December 2010. And what services does Suras offer? Massages, uh, back remedies and uh, general alternative therapies. Things more and more Greeks could probably use these days, especially in Volos. Panos Skotiniotis is the city's mayor. Volos has been hit hard by the crisis, Skotiniotis tells me. When construction fell off, the region's cement and metal industries suffered. Unemployment is rising, and local funding from the Greek state is down 40% over the past three years. Skotiniotis says the municipality can't support the TEM network in any official way, but he certainly sees its value. It goes without saying that this currency is not substituting for the official state currency, the euro, says the mayor, but it's a supplement for people who can't meet their own needs. Back at the market, I'm told the TEM network in Volos is growing quickly. More than 1,000 people have joined or are waiting to join in this city of 150,000. Katerina joined a month and a half ago. Katerina says she's here selling her homemade liqueurs, jams, and sweets. For her, the network isn't just about creating an alternative social structure. It's about survival. She uses her credits to buy staples, vegetables, fruits, and eggs from others in the network. 
She says she wishes the TEM network were bigger. She wants to be able to buy things like olive oil and meat. Katerina says she's been unemployed for five months now. I ask her if she's received any help from the local government. The state is completely absent, she tells me. All of our politicians are cheats. They robbed us. For good measure, she adds, you go tell Obama that. Nearby, I find 18-year-old Olina. She's helping her mother sell some of the family's clothes. Because I don't think that clothes matters now, right now, right this moment, you know, from all the crisis. I think food is more important. Olina tells me she's studying communication and wants to write for a fashion magazine like Vogue someday. She says being in the TEM network has helped her family put food on the table. Like almost all of the people I spoke to in Volos, Olina tells me she doesn't expect Sunday's elections to change much, no matter who wins. Little wonder, then, that Volos's alternative currency idea, or something very similar, is now catching on in seven or eight other cities and towns in Greece. The only question, it seems, is if the TEM will be an alternative for the euro or the drachma. For the world, this is Clark Boyd, Volos, Greece. Whether it's euros or drachmas could be determined by who wins Sunday's election in Greece. The rising leftist party, Syriza, opposes the deep spending cuts that the previous Greek government agreed to in exchange for international bailout funds. Now, if Syriza wins, Greece could soon be on its way out of the eurozone. Justin Fox is editorial director for the Harvard Business Review Group. What is at stake in this election, Justin? For the short term, what's at stake appears to be whether Greece stays in the euro or not. The bigger question is really whether the euro survives or not as a common currency for all of Europe. And while this election plays a role in that, those are decisions that are going to be made in Berlin and Paris and Brussels, not in Athens. Okay, but what is going to be determined in Athens in the upcoming election this weekend is whether the anti-austerity parties get in power or whether those that promise to crack down and try and get the Greek debt under control, whether those parties will win. How does, say, an anti-austerity party winning this weekend uh, possibly spell the end of the euro in Greece? Well, there's a deal with Germany and with the rest of Europe that Greece has that's basically a bailout for Greece, which is simply bankrupt, can't pay its debts, in exchange for trying to cut back on those debts. That's the austerity measures everybody talks about. So if a new party comes in that just says, I want to tear up this deal, this is ridiculous, obviously that whole bailout and deal to keep Greece in the euro is in question. Haven't they all been through this before, though? I mean, Yeah, that's sort of the... It, I mean, we had an election in May, same questions, same things at stake, and um, the election didn't resolve it. They haven't been able to form a, a government. Okay. So what about now the knock-on effects for other European countries in the immediate aftermath of, of this upcoming election? Well, the real fear here, and I don't know that the Greek election determines it or not, but it's one more landmark in it, is whether the euro stays together or unravels. And it's just looking – we've had so many moments over the past two years when we all sort of watched, oh, are they going to make this deal or is this party going to win this election? And sometimes markets get calmed down a little bit for a few days and then you know, eventually the problems rear their head again because they're just not solved. You have this situation where you have a common currency but no common economy, no common fiscal policy like we have in the United States and it just can't hold together. And until – the steps are taken, and it's really Germany's call 
to do something about that and create something more of a fiscal union, we're just going to keep having these crises. Germany's call because there's increasing pressure on Angela Merkel of Germany to give in on these austerity demands. Yeah, there is. And there's increasing calls on her and Germany to give some sort of commitment to actually helping out other countries in the Eurozone that are in trouble in a sort of systematic way. And the Germans hate that idea. They feel like, why are we giving money to shiftless Greeks? But, I mean, that's sort of automatically the way the U.S. system works. When it's going badly in one state, federal money flows there automatically. Europe doesn't have that set up at all, and that's part of the problem. So how about U.S. interests here? Well, it really wouldn't be in the U.S. interest to have the euro and the European economy fall apart in a really bad way. There are some very smart people who look at this and basically see if the euro comes apart in an unruly fashion, which could happen in the next few weeks, probably more likely over the next year or two, that'll be a financial crisis much worse than the one we had in 2008. But you're saying if it happens, but it's not all contingent on what happens It's this not weekend. all, no. This is one more little step in this long downward path towards the euro not working anymore. Is there any bright side here? I mean, it just seems as if the convulsions continue. Well, there's always that idea with, you know, when things are as bad as they can possibly get to be, they start getting better. I just... You know, I can't predict the future in Europe, but it just doesn't feel like we've reached that worst spot yet. Because the right people, the right parties, the right countries aren't stepping up or what? Yeah, because at some level, if Greece leaves the euro, if, if Greece collapses economically and already has to some extent, that's horrible for Greece. It's scary for the rest of the Europe, but it has relatively little direct economic impact. Greece is a very tiny economy. So it, it's sort of the next stages when it's Spain or maybe Italy that's running into these kinds of troubles, that might be the moment that finally forces real action. Thank you very much, Justin Fox, Editorial Director for the Harvard Business Review Group. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Staying with Europe for our GeoQuiz now, we're looking for an old European city on the Elbe River. clues this time before we give you the answer. The city is in what used to be communist East Germany. It was once a medieval power, and a few years back it celebrated its 1200th birthday. Today it's the capital of the German state of Saxony-Anhalt. This week it's hosting a new training program for art professionals. They're learning to be detectives so they can help recover art that was looted by the Nazis during World War II. Sorry, we're going straight to the answer here now. It is the German city of Magdeburg. Wesley Fisher is there. He's research director for the Conference on Jewish Claims Against Germany. He says there's still a vast amount of art that's missing that was stolen by the Nazis, but he says this training will help. This is the first international training program in how to do provenance research and how to do the history of the ownership of an art object here in Magdeburg, Germany. And there's a need for training of people in provenance research on art and libraries, archives, Judaica, and the like. But the search has been on for decades now for much of this looted artwork. You say this is the first training session in provenance research. Why is it happening now? There is no training in provenance research in art history departments. You, you cannot be trained in this professionally in the United States, for example. The other thing is that as generations are passing... A lot of this artwork, which is kept in private homes and private hands, uh, is beginning to reach the art market as people pass away and 
things come to auction and the like. Much of this remains in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, where its fate was unknown and hidden until the end of communism in the early 90s. Okay, I mean, it is pretty amazing that, that the provenance research is only really getting started right now. What are these people who are there, the art dealers, the museum workers, what are they learning? Well, the training ranges from very specific things such as what is the first thing you do when faced with a painting, when you see a painting? Do you know the answer to that? Uh, what do you do? You look to see who the painter was. No, you turn it over and you look at the back of the painting because all the various numbers, all the various signage that was used as to what happened to the painting is generally on the back, including numbers that the Nazis used, but also including if the uh, painting was in a variety of, of uh, exhibitions and the like. But, that's but, but even specific. if it was stolen, I mean, that you'd have that kind of a legacy of provenance written on the back? Oh, yes. The largest of the Nazi looting agencies, the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, the, or otherwise known as the ERR, uh, which stole millions of items and, you know, the thousands of artworks, they had a numbering system and they would put it on the back. You can see a good many of these numbers uh, in the archival matters. Uh, we only recently, we premiered a, a, a database of what was taken in Paris, which identifies all these things by the numbers. What else are they learning there? Well, one of the biggest issues is what kinds of archival information is there? What kinds of databases are out there that can help show what happened to a given artwork. One of the things that's major in recent years is, because of the internet, the development of such things as the scanned records of auction houses, or the scanned Nazi records themselves, the original records of looting, but also, of course, the issue that um, it only now can you search for where a painting may be, it's not just paintings, uh, where a painting may be and find it more easily on the internet because there's so much information on the internet. Uh, so you have so, technical tools that are that are an advent this time around. Yes, but something that was very interesting was there was a visit to the local archive of Saxony-Anhalt, the uh, state of Germany where this is taking place. And for the first time, people realized, including me, that there were, after World War II, claims for art made by Jews in East Germany. That is to say, people were making claims to the German Democratic Republic, and those claims have never been really looked at. Most of those things may have been taken by the Soviets and taken back to Moscow. They may have gone onto the art market and gone elsewhere, but no one's really looked at those claims. Why, why uh, is this so important to you, Wesley? Well, I have to tell you that the press tends to concentrate on the high end of the art market, on the multi-million dollar paintings and the like. But this involves also a tremendous number of things that were of great importance to families and to communities. It includes items that may not be worth much in terms of dollars, but which are in fact important either because they have religious significance or family significance and the like. And this is something which we've always been interested in, but this is something which we haven't been able to pay so much attention to until recently. Wesley Fisher, we appreciate your time and good luck. Thank you. Wesley Fisher is research director for the New York-based Conference on Jewish Claims Against Germany. He spoke to us from Magdeburg, Germany, which is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Foreigners crossing into the United States are fueling the U.S. economy and upsetting residents of some border states in the process. We're not talking undocumented immigrants, and the border isn't with Mexico. Along the U.S.-Canada border, small airports are humming with business from bargain-hunting Canadians. They're driving south right across the border for cheaper American airfares. John Ryan of KUOW has the story from Bellingham, Washington. I'm walking through one of the recently expanded parking lots at Bellingham International Airport. There's hundreds of cars here, and it's mostly full. Most of the cars and trucks have license plates from one place, British Columbia. The main way that this airport is an international airport is that most of its passengers drive here from another country. My name is Zahir Dasa. I'm from uh, Ladna, British Columbia, just south of Vancouver. We're flying to Vegas, and uh, for us in, in Canada, with all the taxes, and you know, it's much more reasonable to come through Bellingham. Yeah. Coast to coast, millions of Canadians each year flock to airports just south of the border. The airport in Plattsburgh, New York, bills itself as L'Aéroport Américain de Montréal. That's Montreal's U.S. airport. It's about an hour's drive from Montreal. Five out of six Plattsburgh passengers are Canadian, and the airport has gone bilingual to serve its Québécois passengers. Most of Bellingham's passengers are Canadian, too, like Dennis Linton of Langley, B.C. He drove 30 miles for his flight to Vegas. There is a significant cost savings for us to actually come to the likes of Bellingham Airport rather than flying out of our Vancouver International. How much? I'd say it was in the neighborhood of about 35 to 40 percent. It actually is quite a significant savings. Thanks to the influx of Canucks, Bellingham's airport has nearly quadrupled its business in the past five years. It's a sharp contrast with the rest of the U.S., where air travel peaked in 2007. Daniel Zank manages the Bellingham Airport. We've expanded the terminal three times now. We've expanded our vehicle parking lots four times, just trying to keep up with the demand. The number one airline in Bellingham and Plattsburgh is Allegiant Air. The low-cost carrier's business model revolves around buying old MD-80 jets. MD-80s are cheap, but Daniel Zank admits they have their downsides. The MD-80 is a louder and a noisier aircraft. Rural neighbors of the formerly sleepy Bellingham Airport aren't so happy with the booming cross-border business. Steve Bacon lives about six miles north of the airport, surrounded by dairy and berry farms. I call it LVI, Lower Vancouver International, because that's the predominant use of the airport. It's really outgrown totally the use by the region, and the airport would not be at its current size or undergoing its current expansion plans if not for the Canadian use of it. And it's all generating a lot of noise, says Lisa Newlight, a librarian who lives north of Bellingham. It changes the whole rural character of where I live. It feels like we're selling our community short. Like, why are we really that desperate? Canadian airports don't like the trend either. They say Canada is losing $2 billion a year to so-called passenger leakage. Daniel Robert Gooch is president of the Canadian Airports Council. He says the problem is that Canada's air travelers are expected to pay for airport improvements through taxes and fees. We have taken an approach in Canada to aviation that's different. We don't subsidize airports in the way that takes place in the U.S. and and other parts of of the world. So we see the user paying 100% of the cost. 
A report from the Canadian Senate last week echoed those concerns. The study argued that Canada's airports need tax breaks to compete with their subsidized neighbors to the south. Airline passengers in the U.S. do pay fees to support airport infrastructure, but U.S. taxpayers pick up the tab for other improvements, like a $30 million upgrade to the Bellingham Airport runway. For The World, I'm John Ryan, Bellingham, Washington. Finally today, a musical pairing between a Senegalese chora player and singer and a German jazz trumpeter. Ablasi Soko and Volker Gerza have a new album out. It's called Amanka Deonte. Guest DJ Tom Schnabel of station KCRW chose it for us, and he tells us where the album's title comes from. Amanka Deonte means she is not your slave, and it refers to girls coming from the impoverished countryside of Senegal to work in homes of wealthier families. They're promised uh, all sorts of things, but they are underpaid and they are worked like slaves. So that's what Amanka Deonte means. She is not your slave. The first track is uh, sung in uh, Mandinka, which is uh, a Malian dialect, even though Ablay Sissoko is from Senegal. It's about uh, the role of the griots and how they uh, appeal to society to respect art and its fragility in everyday life. Mela service auto Nita mata Mela barajo to Mulalinata wo Kananto A song called Kana Malundi from a new album called Amanke Diante by Able Sissoko from Senegal and Volker Goetze from Germany and now based in New York. One of the things I love about this new album, it's very much an acoustic album, and the sound is gorgeous, not only because of the performance, but the fact that the album was recorded acoustically in a 150-year-old wooden church in Paris. They selected this church, and the sound is just absolutely beautiful. There's an upbeat track that I really like from this new album called Silo. It's an instrumental, and it showcases the interplay between the trumpet and the chora. I mean, you wouldn't really put a European instrument, like a brass instrument, like a trumpet with a traditional West African. You think, well, wait a minute, this is like you know, mixing traditions and mixing continents and everything else. But they just work perfectly together, and it shows me, at least once again, that this beautiful African instrument, the chora, really works with just about any other instrument. called Silo from a new album called Amanke Diante by Able Sissoko and Volker Goetze. The final song that I'd like to play is a very deep song. It's called simply Haiti. And it's a song about Haiti before and after the earthquake. But it even goes further than that. Haiti is connected to Senegal because a lot of the slaves were shipped um, from Gori Island off the coast of Senegal. And, uh, and Haiti, of course, was a destination for many of those slaves. So there is historical connections. It's a beautiful song. And there's also a beautiful video that is embedded in the CD that basically talks about the connections and about the lyrics of this song called Haiti. Banco mamanta eche Jakalo sita Malo mwenye sabo 
Banco Mamantaiti Jakala Sita our thanks to Tom Schnabel of Station KCRW for sharing that with us. You can see the video for Haiti by Able Sissoko and Volker Gerza. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.